Hello my lovelies and welcome to another episode of Primed for Crime. I am your host Liv and I'm very excited to have you here and hope you enjoy today's case. So today's case is about a man named Jerry Michael Williams and one day before his anniversary he went duck hunting on the Lake Seminole but he never returned home. Now for years people were convinced that he had been eaten by the alligators but the truth that later comes out was much more sinister. Before we get into the case, I just want to state that everything I talk about today is just information I have found online and I mean no disrespect to anybody involved or mentioned. Today's episode does include brief mention of suicide, so if this is something that you're not comfortable listening to at the moment, then please feel free to click out of this podcast. So, let's begin. This is the murder of Jerry Michael Williams. So I'm just going to start with a little bit of background on Jerry Michael Williams, um, or more commonly known as Michael and Mike. So he grew up in Bradfordville and he was the son of a greyhound bus driver and a daycare provider and they raised him and his older brother Nick in a double wide trailer. So instead of building a house, his parents decided to save their monies so both boys, who helped by working nights at the supermarkets, could attend North Florida Christian High School. And whilst he was there, Mike excelled, you know, serving as student council president, playing football. He was very active within the school and at the age of 15, he began duck hunting as a hobby. And he also became... Um, friends with a fellow student called Denise Morell. So after North Florida Christian School, he attended Florida State University where he majored in political science and urban planning. Before graduation, he was hired by Ketchum Appraisal Group as a property appraiser and he distinguished himself as, quote, the hardest working man I ever saw. So, obviously, I mentioned Denise Morell. He actually ended up marrying her in 1994, and he'd often go home for dinner and return to work after she went to bed, and sometimes went to work after going duck hunting in the morning. So, he was a very busy man, always had something to do, always, you know, just constantly doing something. Um, so, according to his mother, Mike was making 200 um, 200,000 US dollars annually by the time of his disappearance, which is a bloody lot of money actually. Um, him and Denise had bought a small, um, upscale, uh, sorry, a small house in a upscale subdivision, <laughs> sorry that was a bit of a mouthful, on the east side of the city. So the two were doing really well and in 1999 they had a daughter, that was his only child, a daughter, and she was born. And his co-workers said that he was as devoted to her as he was his work, like he just absolutely adored his child. However, unfortunately the following year his father died. And this is when, kind of like midway through that year, The couple bought a $1 million life insurance policy on him through a man named Brian Winchester, who was a childhood acquaintance of Denise and had also become best friends with her husband. Later that same year, Williams told his mother, who he'd obviously been looking out for after the death of his father, he said that he would like to have had $50,000 so he could take off the next year of work. So two days before his disappearance, Mike and Denise told his mother, as well as his brother Nick, that they were planning to have another child soon. In 2001, she said that they were planning to go on a cruise to Hawaii that spring. Later in the year, he expected to travel to Jamaica for work as well. So there was lots of plans going on. He seemed like he was really excited about it. They wanted another child. Lots of things to look forward to. So according to Denise, on the morning of December 16th, 2000, which was a Saturday, 
Her husband woke up early, leaving the house well before dawn with boat in tow to go duck hunting at Lake Seminole. Now, the lake is a large reservoir, approximately 50 miles northwest of Tallahassee, located in the southwest corner of Georgia along its border with Florida, where three other streams merge to form the Apalachicola River. Please tell me I'm saying that right. It's taking me at least six attempts to pronounce that. So the couple had plans to celebrate their sixth wedding anniversary that night in Apalachicola. God, how terrible does that sound? Apologies. So by noon, Denise called her father to tell him that Mike had not yet returned from his trip. So Brian Winchester's dad, and Brian Winchester himself, went to the areas of the lake where they knew that Mike frequently went duck hunting. So once they'd reached one of these places, they actually came across his 1994 Ford Bronco near a remote boat launch in Jackson County on the Florida side. So after investigators with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, that was a mouthful, so after they were called, a search did begin, but it soon had to be called off after a storm blew in that direction. So the initial search investigation was handled by the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. I'm going to call them FFWCC. Okay, so the initial search was handled by them and since it had been reported to them as a missing hunter, the agency handled the case that way, focusing on search and rescue or recovery. One of the agency's officers recalled later, quote, We didn't have a whole lot to go on, except there was an empty boat and a guy didn't show up. There was nothing there that we had from the scene that suggested foul play at all. Deputies with the Jackson County Sheriff's Office were present at this time, but kind of more working in a support capacity. They were just kind of letting the agency kind of do their thing. So the searchers focused on a 10 acres of lake surrounding the cove where Brian's truck was parked and his boat was actually soon found roughly 225 feet from the ramp by a helicopter pilot who had actually initially assumed it was a boat being used in the search. So after pulling the boat back to shore, they had a look through it And investigators found Mike's shotgun still in its case, but no sign of Mike himself. Now, the cove is locally believed to have been an orchard before the Chattahoochee, sorry if I'm saying that wrong, and Flint Rivers and Spring Creek were dammed to create the lake. And it took its name Stump Field from the many remaining stumps that kind of kind of protruded above and below the water level which would require careful handling of any sort of boat in that particular area and this is exactly what searchers assumed they assumed that Mike had like hit a stump with his boat and maybe fallen out and sunk into waters of maybe 8 to 12 feet deep and maybe his waders had filled with water and subsequently drowned when he was unable to bring himself back up to the surface But had Mike actually drowned, his body would have been expected to eventually float to the surface, making it obviously easier to discover. And investigators did assure Mike's family that his body would eventually surface, just like other drowning victims, within maybe three to seven days, or perhaps slightly longer due to the cold front that had moved in after the first night's storm. However, 10 days later, there was still no body. However, a camouflage-patterned hunting hat was found, but it could not be connected to Mike. The efforts still continued until the search was called off in early February, and it had since been suggested that the search might have been continued had Denise indicated an interest in such. And you will find out in a little minute what her... Well, you'll see, you'll see. So at the time, the case was still considered open, but nothing in the search or rescue efforts had kind of produced any definitive evidence of a boating accident or fatality. To this day, you know, it's 
it really doesn't seem like that happened. There was no actual evidence of it. And if Mike had have drowned after accidentally falling out of his boat, his body would be the only one of 80 known deaths in the lake never to have been found. The head of a private search firm that supplemented official efforts near the end of the search did actually offer a possible explanation. So it was written um, that basically with all the wildlife around, the guess was that alligators could have dismembered and stored his remains in a location that the searchers just weren't able to find. And Early searchers did report seeing many alligators and some of the officials were actually willing to accept this as a possibility. And it was suggested that perhaps Mike's body had become entangled in the beds of dense hydrilla beneath the lake surface and then maybe found by an alligator and then again later turtles and catfish finishing what they had left behind. So this was the first, well second theory. And um, that's what they thought and that's what everybody kind of accepted, I guess. In June, an angler in the Stumpfield area discovered a pair of waders floating in the lake. Divers called in to search the area and recovered from the bottom lake, uh, bottom of the lake, sorry, a lightweight hunting jacket and a flashlight and in one of the jacket pockets, there was a hunting license with Mike's name and signature. And this was, I think, about four months after they called off the search. However, the one thing that doesn't make sense about what they found was there were no teeth marks on, or any other damage on the waders, and none of the recovered items showed signs of having been in the water for anything like the period that Mike had been missing and there was also no DNA evidence found to link the clothing to him. But obviously there was the hunting license with his name on it. So again everything's just kind of been thrown up in the air, no one's not really sure what's going on and Denise, I've got to say, a week later a week after this had been discovered, a Leon County judge actually granted Denise um, her petition to have Mike declared legally dead on the basis of um, those recovered items and an assumption that alligators and other water life had consumed the body to its entirety, even though there is no evidence that that actually happened. So this decision allowed Denise to immediately proceed with claims on her husband's life insurance policies from which she received $1.5 million, which is a bloody lot of money. And Denise just keeps on Denising and five years later she decided to marry none other than Brian Winchester who had actually sold Mike some of the policies a few months before he disappeared. The couple then went on to live in the same house where Denise and Mike had lived prior, and they mostly declined to discuss the case publicly. They just kind of shut it out of the mind, weren't bothered, which, you know, I can understand if something traumatic had happened like that, but with all the red flags, there's just so many red flags with Denise. You know, she literally... Uh, wanted to get this done as soon as possible even when they were still searching and they'd found obviously his hunting license it just doesn't seem to all add up now mike's mother cheryl has a lot to say about this and she actually had hired the private search team that summarized this alligator theory by the end of the original search So after it ended and after her son was declared legally dead, and may I just add, the proceedings said, uh, she said in 2008 that she would have contested if she had been aware of this proceeding. Um, She was still not convinced that he had drowned in the lake, but unfortunately her attempts to bring about a further investigation were unsuccessful. 
She stated that she received threats to discourage her and for the next several years she investigated on her own when not operating a daycare at her house. She ran advertisements in local newspapers, she put up billboards seeking information and all the subsequent investigations of the case have resulted from her efforts. She did believe that her son might still be alive she got a lot of criticism from this you know for not admitting that Mike was dead but she said that all she knew is that she just couldn't stop looking for him until he was found and her efforts had severely strained her relationship with her former daughter-in-law Denise which again if my husband had gone missing xyz I would be like Cheryl, I would be doing everything I possibly could to try and find the man that I love and she just seemed to quickly like finger snap, you know, yeah whatever, let's just get on with life which again you never know how people are going to react with grief but it seems a little bit dramatic in my opinion, in my opinion it does seem a little bit much, a little bit too fast. But the nagging from Cheryl and a friend did eventually pay off because in 2004, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, or the FDLE, which I'm going to call them, did agree to reopen this case. Now, it does not normally have jurisdiction in missing person cases and can't really get involved in investigations purely on the basis of a citizen's request but it can offer assistance to local agencies, and this is what happened in this case. So in retrospect, many officers agreed with her that the circumstances surrounding Michael's apparent drowning four years before were unusual and were strongly at odds with the conclusion. So I'm just going to go through some of the conclusions that they kind of talked about. So first, the boat launch where his Bronco was found, which he would presumably have used to put his boat in the lake, was an undeveloped patch of mud. Yet nearby were finished concrete launches that he was known to have used in the past. So point one doesn't make sense. Point two, the storm the night after he was reported missing had westerly winds that should have blown the abandoned um, boat across the lake to the Georgia side. Again, possible that it might not, but it should have. So point two doesn't make sense. Point three, when the boat was recovered, the engine was off, yet the gas tank was still full. And according to a representative of the manufacturer, if the engine had been running when Williams allegedly fell out of the boat, as investigators had theorised, then it should have stayed on, with the boat just running in circles until its fuel was all gone. Which seems weird, and the representative said that when this situation was described to him, he thought something sounds fishy with that. He genuinely said that. And again, investigators also learnt that Mike doesn't usually go hunting alone. So it's a lot, it's a lot. And to top it off, the FFWCCs, Arnett, who had initially thought the situation was a typical case involving a missing hunter and possible boating accident, said, quote, Some things looked unusual right off the bat. Then after a couple, three days, after the weeks went on, those first things looked even more out of place, end quote. So people are starting to re-look at this and think, actually, you know what? This actually might not be what we first thought maybe this needs another look which i agree with everything that's just been stated there doesn't make sense if you really logically think about it doubts that mike had drowned became much more serious when investigators learned that in fact alligators do not generally feed during the winter months due to the colder temperatures and during the search period daytime temperatures averaged around 13 degrees Celsius or 55 Fahrenheit, with overnight lows below freezing. So it was cold. And, you know, some nights got as cold as minus 7 degrees Celsius or 
19 Fahrenheit. And a fire was built in a 55-gallon drum on the shore for searchers to stay warm. This is how cold it was. So with the water already at 14 degrees Celsius the day of Mike's disappearance, and it dropped to about 8, and the lake iced out to as much as 20 feet from shore, it just doesn't... It's highly unlikely. And actually, a local herpetologist, Matt Aresco, said that in those conditions, it, quote, is like highly unlikely an alligator would have even been active. All they are doing is maintaining their body temperature. 58 degrees is too cold for an alligator to be interested in food at all. And even if an alligator had defied all known gator behaviours and eaten William's body, it would have been likely left something behind. End quote. So, yeah, it, <laughs> they kind of maybe should have thought about this before the fact, possibly. Um, so, yeah, highly, highly unlikely that he has been eaten by alligators. So it's just stirring the pot even more. Now, Williams... Mike Williams was about 5 foot 10, 170 pounds, and Oresco considers any theory that attributes the missing body to alligators and any other aquatic animals is a stretch. It would be very, very unusual to have a complete disappearance of a full-grown man. This is what he's saying. It's, it's, a, it's a big stretch, this theory. So going back to the waders that were discovered almost six months after Mike's disappearance, now this firma undermined the alligator theory. So while the diver who retrieved them reported that they were in the area of uh, of disturbed weeds with alligator excrement nearby, it's consistent with the original belief that he had drowned whilst wearing them. He allowed it was quote anyone's guess as to whether they had been later planted in that spot they just really don't know where these waders had come from investigators suspicions were raised further uh, by the waders condition which was undamaged it had no tooth marks lacking any of the residues that would be expected to accumulate of an object submerged in the lake for as long as it had so Again, it doesn't make sense. So much of this case, just you think you've got it right and then bam, no. So, in fact, Arnett filtered the water in them after they were recovered and they didn't find any human remains. The hunting jacket and flashlight were likewise in much better condition than expected, with the latter even working when turned on. So apart from the condition of the waders was the question of why Mike would have been wearing them when he supposedly fell out of the boat. Now according to a friend who hunted with him frequently, including one week before his disappearance, Mike took safety very, very seriously, keeping his guns at work, away from his daughter, amongst other precautions. So on the water, he never put his waders on until he had reached the point where he planned to get out and start hunting. You know, which is following a common safety procedure in order to avoid the type of accident from which he was later to believe to have died. And this friend said that he would preach it to him. You know, so why would he be wearing his waders while driving the boat? Again, doesn't make sense. So it eventually got to the point where all the investigators in this case all shared the same belief that Mike didn't die in that lake. However, the new investigation was made extremely difficult by the deficiencies of the original search when, you know, criminal activity hadn't been considered. So basically it seemed that the scene hadn't been protected at all and everything was a little bit botched because they weren't seeing it as a you know murder scene or something of that nature they just assumed it was an accident so nothing was really preserved and by the time the investigators began to realize that they should have asked some more questions the opportunity was gone so mike's boat and his bronco had been returned to his family and friends 
The footsteps of many volunteers and searchers all over the lakeshore had made it impossible to collect any evidence from that area, and the items later recovered from the lake had not been retained. So, without any of that evidence, or Mike's body, it was impossible for police to make a case. It seemed like they had hit a brick wall, basically, and Derek Wester, an investigator with the Jackson County Sheriff's Office, agreed that they were kind of trying to make up for not having considered the possibility that things might not have been what they seemed in 2000. His office did keep the case open and had some persons of interest, although he did not identify them. Eventually, the FDLE closed its case, convinced that the alligator theory was wrong, but without any leads or evidence that could allow it to investigate further. And by 2006, its cold case investigators were no longer returning to returning Cheryl's phone calls. She just continued to do what she could to publicise the case, like taking ads out with Tallahassee Democrat, just doing everything she could to keep this case alive. And then, in October 2007, a new possible lead emerged. So, this new lead emerged when Mike's older brother found a photograph and the serial number of a 22 caliber pistol that had once belonged to their father. Now Mike had inherited it after his father's death and after Mike was declared legally dead, it was the only one of his firearms that Denise had not returned to her former in-laws. So, after Jackson County Sheriff's Investigator Wester asked the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, the ATF, to look for it, the agents did visit Denise and Brian, who were now married in their house, well, the house that she and Mike had lived in, so they went to go and interview them, and several days later, their attorney delivered the gun to the FDLE, and it was sent to State Forensics Laboratory for DNA testing, and unfortunately, the results have not been reported. On the anniversary of Mike's disappearance that year, the Winchesters made one of their very few public statements on the case. So Brian said in an email to the Democrat, quote, For seven years, we have prayed and hoped to find out with certainty what happened to Mike. Nobody wants Mike found more than we do. End quote. Now, rumours were circulating around Tallahassee that a grand jury had been hearing evidence and would soon hand down indictments. So this could possibly be why they spoke out publicly. Obviously, just my opinion. I think they maybe thought, hmm, things are getting a little bit weird might have to speak out and try and get the blame off of me because things were definitely closing down on them all it's just kind of all looking bad for them if you know realistically it is so they were probably panicking a little bit to be honest so we're now in 2008 and the florida department of financial services division of insurance fraud a mouthful um in conjunction with the fdle began investigating the case from this angle. Now, normally under Florida law, the statute of limitations on that crime is five years, meaning it would have expired in 2005, but it can be extended by three years under certain circumstances, which is brilliant. So the insurance fraud, the DIF, lead attorney Mark Schlein said, quote, the circumstances surrounding this case raise many serious and troubling questions, end quote. I agree with you there, Mark. Now, Perry, the FFWCC officer, who had been heavily involved in the original search, added at the time that if he or any other person investigating had known that there was a large life insurance policy on Mike and who the beneficiary was that the search might have been handled differently. It was noted that Denise's court petition to have her husband legally declared dead mentioned only the Kansas City Life Insurance Company policies Winchester had sold him, 
emitting policies through other companies that Mike had obtained through other sources. However, Brian Jones, an expert in insurance law at Florida State University, told the Democrat that any fraud case would have um, would have to rest on more than just those facts already known to have aroused um, investigative 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 interest. He said that the mere fact that they can't locate the body isn't necessarily something the insurance industry would care about. But if Mike was to be proven dead and the beneficiary were to have shown, were to have, God, hang on, and were to, if, sorry, if Mike was to be proven dead and the beneficiary were to have shown to have been involved, or if he was still alive, as his mother believed, then an insurance company would strongly consider pursuing a case. They would want to know more about this. So it's a little bit fishy that um, the insurance company was that of Brian. So by the 8th anniversary of Mike's disappearance, however, the DIF had closed the case. Schlein said, quote, Our job was extremely difficult and we were simply unable to develop enough evidence to proceed with the investigation. However, he did add that if new information were received, the investigation could be reopened. And he said that they had their suspicions, but they just needed more evidence. Now, there was a possible other lead that um, proved kind of fruitless as well. So Carrie Cox, who is a self-described psychic and certified forensic psychological profiler from Kentucky, reviewed the case and had identified a possible location of Mike's body. Now, she gave investigators the coordinates of this location um, in Wakula, Wakula County near another boat launch. So police were like, you know what, okay, at this point we'll try anything. So cadaver dogs were brought to this area and sniffed it out, but found nothing. However, Cox nevertheless concluded that, quote, we are moving in the right direction, I think something is here, end quote. Um, But the FDLE officials said in 2011 that Cox had not found anything requiring further investigation. So, another dead end. But despite the failure of a third investigation, um, Cheryl persisted. Her efforts led to the Investigation Discovery Cable Channel doing a segment on Mike's disappearance and the later investigations in the late 2011. She said that they don't quite know like what the smoking gun is, but they're just hoping that somebody will find it still after all them years still just knowing in her head that they will do it and she is just doing everything she can again to keep this case going so by then she had become disillusioned with the fdle and you know believing that it was either incompetent or uninterested in resolving the case and in in particular she came to believe the investigation was hampered by the involvement of agent Mike Phillips who was a friend of both her son and his then wife Denise. Now Phillips had told her early on in the search that Michael had probably been eaten by alligators so she had assumed he had been involved in the investigation at that point. However, he later said that he was never and was merely just trying to comfort her. And the FDLE said his involvement was limited to asking his superiors if the agency could help with the search. It did not see a need to formally investigate his role. 
Starting on New Year's Day in 2012, Cheryl began writing one letter a day to Governor Rick Scott, asking him to either have another agency besides the FDLE investigate or appoint a special prosecutor to do so. And after she had written over 200 letters without even an acknowledgement that they had been received, she began inquiring personally as to why, which I think I would be as well. And it turned out that the governor's office had forwarded them unopened to the FDLE's headquarters where they were being placed in a case file. And she was just outraged. They could not have hurt her more if they'd punched her in the face, you know. Like, the, oh, I feel so sorry for her. I really do. So the next twist in this case, yes, another one, is in 2012 when Denise and Brian separated and this was reportedly due to his sex addiction and she filed for divorce in 2015. Now Brian opposed it initially and had to be ordered to comply and as part of that order he was to provide an appraisal of the couple's house house sorry due early in August 2016. Now Denise told Leon County Sheriff's Office investigators that on the August 5th the day when the appraisal had to be filed with the court she left her home to drive to her job at the Florida State University. And while she was talking on the phone to her sister, she saw somebody climb over the back seat of her car. And that person turned out to be Brian. He took her phone away and just began yelling directions at her. And she was like, no, you know, I'm, I'm not going to drive off. Like, what are you doing? But he then pulled a gun out and, you know, she started driving because she was, like, fearing for her life. All of this happened so quickly she did not know what was going on. And she later said that he claimed that it was necessary since she was not taking his calls and was blocking his text messages. And, yeah, he thought that was the best solution. But instead of going where he wanted her to, she pulled into a CVS drugstore parking lot and just, you know, like close to the door. She was like ready for anything at this point. And this is when Brian told her that he was planning to kill himself with the gun. He said that he did not want a divorce and felt he had nothing to live for if it went through. He assured her he did not want to kill her, just himself, and she was able to calm him down eventually and took him back to where he had parked his own truck at a nearby park. And before he went to it, he took a tan sheet, a different coloured plastic sheet and a spray bottle of bleach and tool from Denise's car. Now after she left, Brian pulled up to her and apologised for his actions And despite her promise to him not to tell the police about the incident, she immediately drove straight to the police station and, you know, she was still very shocked, as you would be. I think anybody in that situation would be. So according to a friend of Winchester's, um, later interviewed by the police, he had been increasingly concerned that as a result of the divorce, Denise would tell the police what she knew about, quote, this guy who died 10 or 12, 15 years ago, end quote. And I wonder who that guy might be. So, as she had not answered his many phone calls, he came up with his plan to wait in the car and hold her at gunpoint. Now, Brian was arrested and charged with kidnapping, domestic assault and armed burglary, with the two of the charges being felonies. Denise requested protection orders, saying she feared for her life and her daughter's, and after a hearing the next week at which she said she could either... she couldn't sleep, she couldn't eat after this incident, the court decided to hold Brian without bond. Now, Cheryl Williams expressed hope that this development could lead to the resolution of her son's disappearance. She told the New York Daily News, quote, 
Brian's not going to let Denise run around alone with all that money. I'm praying he doesn't commit suicide. I'm praying he'll tell us what actually happened, end quote. And she added that she has gone among her family in holding out hope that her son is still alive. So in December 2017 now, Winchester was sentenced to 20 years in prison for the kidnapping with credit for 502 day, days time served. And this was to be followed by 15 years probation. His attorney told the court that he was suicidal that day due to not only the divorce but also his mother's recent terminal cancer diagnosis and the decision by his teenage son from his first marriage to move in with his mother and argued for the 10-year mandatory minimum. Now, prosecutors countered that Brian's actions that day indicated he planned a murder-suicide that was only averted by Denise's quick thinking and asked the court for a 45-year maximum. He is now imprisoned at the Wakula Correctional Institution. So, I mean, such a strange turn of events. Um... But this next part is even crazier, so let's get on with it. No mention was made of the Mike um, disappearance case at Brian's sentencing, although State Attorney Jack Campbell told the media that he hoped the case against Brian would help authorities solve the disappearance. It was later reported that he had reached an agreement with prosecutors before the sentencing that they would neither seek a life sentence on the kidnapping charge nor introduce certain evidence at the hearing. So what that agreement required of Brian, if anything, beyond his guilty plea has not been disclosed. The next day, at a news conference, Mark Perez, the FDLE's special agent in charge, announced to assembled reporters that Mike's body had been found and it had been determined he was the victim of a homicide. However, they declined to release any details of how he had been killed or who the suspect might be or where the body had been found saying they were withholding that information since only the perpetrators would be expected to know it. Subsequently, the FDLE revealed that they had found Mike Williams' remains at the end of Gardner Road in northern Leon County, which was just five miles from where he grew up. And they were confirmed after following a match to his mother's DNA but there were no other details provided at this point. Now, obviously, Denise was arrested and the FDLA disclosed that they had received information on where the body was in early October 2017. County Public Works employees brought in backhoes for what they were told was a training exercise. And after five 16-hour days of digging nine-foot-deep holes in the mud at the corner of the lake, all while holding back the lake waters by dams and pumps amid the constant presence of eels and other water creatures, the FDLE was ready to hire a private contractor to finish the job. Now, on October 18th, the team of search dogs and officers finally found Mike Williams' remains in the piles of dirt stacked on plywood sheets. An FDLE source told the Tallahassee Democrat that 98% of his bones were recovered, all very well preserved, as was some of his clothing that he had been wearing, such as his winter gloves and his boots, and the two DNA tests matched the remains to his mother's sample. So on May 8th, 2018, Denise Williams was arrested at Florida State University as she left work to celebrate her daughter's 19th birthday. Minutes after, a grand jury had indicted her on charges of first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, and accessory after the fact. Prosecutors continued to keep details of the crime to themselves, saying they would share them in court when the time came. They did say that they would seek to have her denied bail. 
Now, Denise's attorney uh, declined to comment at this time, saying he had not had time to review the case fully. And Denise's estranged husband, Brian, was serving his sentence still, and his attorney said his client would take the stand at trial if legally compelled to do so. However, the attorney didn't think Brian would be charged in this case as well. Two FDLE officers went to Cheryl Williams' house immediately following the indictment to inform her, but she didn't speak to the media about how she reacted to the news, which is completely understandable. And then two days later, a three-page indictment was released and it revealed that prosecutors believed Denise allegedly began conspiring with Brian in March of 2000, just nine months before her husband disappeared. Now, Brian is alleged to have killed Mike with a gun, and the accessory charge suggested that sometime between August 2014 and the day that Brian was sentenced, Denise had allegedly helped Brian avoid prosecution or arrest for the crime. Ethan Way, Denise's lawyer, said his client was innocent of all charges, quoting... She had absolutely nothing to do with Mike Williams' disappearance and had absolutely nothing to do with any of the crimes that Brian Winchester committed, end quote. He found it convenient that the indictment came after Brian had been imprisoned for several months. On Denise's behalf, Way entered a plea of not guilty. In late June 2019, Denise Williams was ordered held without bond, with trial date set for September 24th, which is also my birthday. An audio of Brian Winchester's interview with the FDLE was played in court for everybody to listen to, and in it, Brian confessed to pulling the trigger but claims the killing was Denise's idea. Now, her defence argued that the tape should not have been admitted as evidence since Brian was not charged with anything despite his admission and the prosecution said it simply asked him to tell the truth about what happened. And Denise then went on trial in December. So the state's star witness was Brian, who testified at length about he and Denise had never really ended their high school relationship, even after they both married other people. Now, Kathy Thomas, which was Brian's first wife, told the jury that she had suspected the two of having an affair in the late 1990s when they frequently double-dated with Mike and Denise. Now, Brian said in his confession, a tape of which was played for the jury, that the affair had started in 1997 and just, quote, snowballed. After discreetly rekindling the relationship, the two began to consider killing Mike so they could marry, as Denise's family frowned upon divorce for religious reasons. So Denise suggested staging a boating accident on the Gulf of Mexico where they would just throw Mike and Kathy overboard, but Brian didn't want to kill his children's mother, which was, I guess, nice of him? After rejecting plans for a murder at Mike's office meant to look like a robbery, Brian hit on the idea of an apparent hunting accident after he saved Mike from quicksand when the two were hunting in Arkansas. So on the day Mike disappeared, Brian said he had enticed him to Lake Seminole and out of the water he had gotten Mike to put his waders on and then pushed him out of the boat, thinking he would be unable to resurface and subsequently drown. But instead, he managed to get to a tree stump, so Brian fired a single shot straight to his face. And since Mike's death um, could no longer be passed off as a boating accident, because obviously he's just shot him in the face, Brian buried the body where it was later found, then cleaned out his trunk and went to a family Christmas party where he learned that a search was underway. I mean, if so, oh, I can't believe that he's able to just sit through something like that, knowing full well what he has just done. Honestly, absolutely awful. So he and Denise took it slow after Mike's apparent accident, both to let the insurance money earn further interest and to kind of allay any suspicion. Now, the kidnapping that had led to this 
present imprisonment, he explained, was his reaction to fear that Denise would reveal the truth about what had happened to her first husband now that she and Brian were divorcing. Prosecutors also played a taped phone conversation in which Kathy Thomas, who was working with the police at the time, had told Denise she knew the truth about the crime. And each time she brought it up, Denise attempted to change the subject, but at one point asked, what do you know? Assistant State Attorney said that with this, as well as Denise's dispassionate response when Brian told her how he had killed Mike, just demonstrated how cold-bloodedly she helped plan the crime that happened on her behalf. Now, Way argued in response that there was no physical evidence linking Denise to the crime and that it had been entirely Brian's idea. He expressed that Brian was not on trial despite having admitted to committing the crime himself and after four days of testimony, the jury took only eight hours to convict Denise of all the charges and Way said that Denise would appeal the conviction. In February 2019, Denise was sentenced to life in prison. Now, she did not speak or offer any argument on her behalf. The only other person to address the court besides the lawyers was Cheryl Williams, who said that justice had finally been served and that Denise had taken not only her son, but also her granddaughter away from her. Five months later, Mike and Denise's daughter Ainsley was awarded all assets of her late father's estate and insurance monies due to Denise after her mother signed them over to her to avoid prosecution on three counts of insurance fraud. As part of this deal, Ainsley could not use any of the money on her mother's legal fees and if she did, then she would owe the state a $150,000 penalty. Denise is now imprisoned at the Florida Women's Reception Centre. And lastly, in January 2020, Denise Williams appealed her conviction and life sentence, and her attorney argued before the Florida First District Court of Appeals that there was no evidence that she was involved in the commission of the murder, and in November 2020, the murder conviction was overturned, but the conspiracy to commit murder conviction was upheld, including the 30-year sentence that accompanied it. And that does conclude today's episode. Wow, that has been a long one. Kind of wrote it, didn't really realise how how long it was. Um, But it's a crazy case. I remember listening to this case. I actually very vividly remember it. I was actually painting my ceiling in my hallway whilst I was listening to, I think it might have been a documentary on this. And from the start, kind of when Denise started acting a bit shady I was like she's done it she has definitely done it she's definitely had an affair or something with that man and I was right and I think most people listening to it can kind of clock on to it but I suppose at the time when things are moving so fast and you're not really sure what you're looking at or looking for I suppose it can easily be overlooked which is so disappointing but I'm so happy for Mike, for his mother, for his family, that he finally did get the justice that he deserved. So I hope that you've enjoyed today's case. I know I certainly have. And even researching it, like every turn, I was just like, oh my God, oh my God, what's going to happen next? Even though I kind of knew what happened next. Um, So yeah, I hope you've enjoyed and if you are craving some more true crime, head over to the Primed for Crime TikTok where I post small snippets of cases daily. I'm also doing a kind of series on serial killers, which is really interesting. So go and check that out. Um, Like, follow, review, you know, anything that can help. It really does help immensely. You don't even know it. Um, And I will see you for the next mini episode. So yeah, I'll see you later.